I think we can all agree that the worst thing Trump has done as president is to alienate the Canadians, <laughs> which is so unfair. You guys are just trying to be nice. We're the freaking pushover country, man. Like to, to push us, to, to make us the enemy. If you can make us the enemy, like uh, you're, you're really selling it. Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Enslicht. Uh, hello. Very over today. <laughs> yeah, buddy. You're not your usual uh, cheerful self. What's what's up? Yeah, we had our, uh, our fourth, I think, holiday party I counted uh, related to the department and the university. This one was our kind of I guess more micro levels, you know, lab party at Scarborough, a bunch of uh, professors uh, get together, including you, Yoel. And we had a, uh, uh, a rather rambunctious party last night. And I'm, uh, I'm uh, worse for wear today. And what about you? Uh, I'm not feeling good. It's, it's the shots, man. I just can't, you know, can't do the shots. Yeah. The tequila shots. The they're, tequila shots. <laughs> yeah. They are. Not for the faint of heart. So yeah, not 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 feeling that well. But you know, I have a question for you, Yoel, which is, you know, would you like? I mean, how often have you had the desire to wipe your ass with my face? Oh my god, like daily, because I now can solve this problem for you. So uh, another one of our holiday parties was uh, uh, we happened a couple of weeks ago, and I actually missed it because I had uh, just couldn't make it. And uh, my friend. Uh, and, you know, fake enemy, Jeff McDonald, uh, for a re revenge for a present that I, you know, that I bought last year, he got made some toilet paper with my face printed on every square, um, which I think is fucking hilarious. I think it's so funny. But now I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> because I don't really want to wipe my ass with the paper. Uh, but... I don't want it just sitting there on my shelf either. Uh, so what do you recommend? I think it should be a prize in some sort of contest. Yeah. Uh, you mean like for our listeners, maybe? Yeah, <laughs> that's a great idea. Uh, you know, how about this? I'm just going to make this up. Tell me what you think, Yoel. If someone, you know, can uh, have some, you know, witty repartee, some witty, you know, uh, quote tweet of us uh, out of context or any kind of something funny, you know, making fun of us or, or even better, making fun of us and very bad wizards, um, we'll try hard to send you uh, toilet paper with my face on it. it. It should be a joke at your expense in order to be consistent. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's cool. Sure. Make fun of me. I'd love that. That, that, that is so funny. Um, so make it happen, people. And uh, this sweet gift. Maybe we'll take a photo of it and put it on uh, the show notes. Uh, this sweet gift is is yours if you can uh, burn me really badly. Um, I'm going to win that contest, Mickey. <laughs> Do you really want? I got two of them. I can I, I can I can give you one. I'm almost out. <laughs> but, but but how would you feel about wiping your ass with my face? I mean, I think it would be incredibly gratifying. <laughs> Maybe it's because it's my face that I feel weird about it. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. I can see that. So um, do we want to talk about what we're drinking today? Yes, I, I think we should. Um, so this is, you know, long now, quite a few shows in a row. I've lost track. It's been so many. Um, again, a beer that we are drinking today is provided to us by um, a dear listener. This is uh, Caitlin Werner, who is a graduate student out of uh, Carleton University in Ottawa. 
She uh, spent some time in Europe and uh, had a stop off in Brussels and bought, like she, she actually did research, bought some really good beer, uh, good Belgian beer and uh, donated it to us. And um, so right now we're, we're drinking a Delirium Christmas. So it's a Delirium Tremens is a uh, well-known Belgian beer. I remember the first time I, uh, I ran across, uh, across them, it was like 20 some odd years ago. And I just, I love the name Delirium Tremens, uh, which is, of course, the uh, the shakes you get when you're going through alcohol withdrawal. And I guess you drink enough of this beer, you might uh, that might happen. So uh, let's. Uh, right, I, I don't think we can actually <laughs> toast. We're too far away from each yes. other. But cheers, cheers across the table. Yes, and thank you, Caitlin, for that um, uh, for that really really generous gift. Um, so uh, so what do we have in store today? Oh boy. Um, I don't know. I, I heard you were going to spring a bunch of surprises on me. <laughs> I, I think I will. I mean, I think so. Uh, but for the main talk, uh, main, I guess, part of the show, we'll, we're going to be sticking to some politics uh, today. And I thought my little question for you would be maybe, uh, yeah, it's certainly part of the culture wars. Um, so uh, th- this thing happened a week or two ago, uh, which I, I think is uh, interesting, ridiculous. Uh, the reaction is uh, ridiculous. Um, anyhow, uh, there's this character uh, who goes by the name Sar- Sargon of Akkad, who is, uh, I guess, a YouTube personality. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know really much about him. I did a little bit of research on him. And uh, some people claim he's alt-right, uh, but he vehemently denies it. And, and in fact, uh, you know, actually kind of makes fun of the alt-right. But he's certainly seen as a gateway to the alt-right and a gate- gateway to white nationalists. Uh, so according to the Southern Law Poverty Center, which may Maybe he's not a great source. Uh, yeah, we point. should put an asterisk by the SPLC for sure. Yeah, they they so they have an analysis which is a shoddy analysis. And they looked at like seventeen or under twenty uh, uh, active users on this one, uh, you know, clearly white nationalist uh, website, and they looked at who they mentioned as people who were kind of led them to the to, to the path of being white nationalists. And this guy uh, uh, Sargon of Akkad was on there, but as is Sam Harris. Uh, um, and that's, I mean, I think that's pushing it a bit, although I can see maybe that not being completely illogical, but I mean, I don't know. I mean, the problem is, this is the same issue with like the gateway drug theory, right? Like lots of people start with weed, but that doesn't mean that weed is causal in, you know, deciding to smoke crack. Right. So I can imagine that there's people who are sort of casting about for an ideology and they go looking around and they're like, huh, who's, you know, who are people talking about on the internet? This dude, Sam Harris, he seems interesting, right? And then they're like, well, not enough of a Nazi for me. Next. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't put a lot of stock in this analysis. But that said, I have no idea who this dude is. Yeah, like, me Literally zero. Yeah, yeah. I, I, know, I know nothing about him other, other than the little research I did. And anyways, he was uh, just recently kicked off of Patreon. So Patreon is this, this website that allows you to well, raise money, to self-fund. So, um, you know, a really despicable podcasts will, uh, will, will beg for money on Patreon. So like Very Bad Wizards, for example, they, they will beg for money on Patreon. We're like way above that, though. <laughs> We're way above. That. We, all we want is beer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and you know, watching the year will be on Patreon. But no, uh, so anyway, so Patreon decided uh, enough is enough. They had enough of this guy, Sargon of Akkad. And I guess he used the N-word to uh, criticize. Some people were criticizing him. He used some homophobic, homophobic slurs. And they kind of drew a line and said, enough is enough. You're being kicked off our platform. Um, and this led a number of pay, uh, uh Patrons, people were, were were donating money to a bunch of you know uh, internet you know internet personalities like Jordan Peterson, like Sam Harris, like um, uh, Dave Rubin, all these IDW people, um, losing lots of money because uh, 
you know, these patrons were protesting the fact that uh, that Patreon would censor their platform in this way. Um, so on the one hand, so I find this kind of an interesting, t- and, 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 you know, these folks, including Jordan Peterson, are like wondering what to do about this. Should they leave Patreon themselves? Should, should they start their own self-funding, uh, you know, uh, fund yourself kind of website, uh, not go through, through Patreon at all, who are seen as, you know, censoring? Um, so I find this, this fight interesting because it seems like, you know, these folks are, are, you know, framing this as a free speech issue, right? So, you know, why can't uh, Sargon of Akkad speak what he likes? And so what if he uses these racially insensitive and uh, politically incorrect terms? Uh, I mean, more than just politically incorrect. I mean, I think, you know, yeah. Offensive. Uh, offensive. Yeah, objectionable. Um, and uh, so the framing it as a, as a freedom of speech issue. But it struck me that, like, you know, if you are really bothered by Patreon doing this, then you also um, should uh, be bothered by uh, a baker not serving, uh, you know, pie to a gay couple who or baking a cake, to say, for, for, for a gay couple who want to get married. Um, so I, and it seems like a lot of conservative people were like, no, no, no he, you know, this you know, this this bakery should have complete uh, freedom to do what they like, to act according to their values. Conservatives, you know, thought, you know, the, or some conservatives at least, uh, some prominent ones, thought that this baker should have the right to not bake a cake if he, uh, or that company didn't want to. And it strikes me that then if, if you're going to, ho- ho- you know, hold that uh, attitude, then you should also hold the attitude that Patreon should be allowed to kick people off their platform. They're a private company after all. And uh, they can, they have their own moral values about, you know, how they, how they judge these, the, the these sorts of things, but of course, people you know aren't doing that. Conservatives are, um, you know, lauding the the baker, but uh, criticizing the uh, you know Patreon. Um, and to me, that you know that strikes of hypocrisy. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, yet another example of people not having consistent principles about this sort of stuff, which I just think they really don't. I think mainly um, you know post hoc motivated reasoning kind of stuff. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, do you think, and this is, I think this is a bit of a tougher sell, do you think um, those on the left also are in a bind with this one, right? So if you think that um, uh, the, the bake shop should be forced, the bakery should be forced to, uh, to, to bake the cake, then um, shouldn't you then, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you really care about free speech, shouldn't you then be appalled that Patreon is you know, not abiding by free speech as well or not, you know, well, be forced and maybe in some way, I think it's a weaker case there. I agree. Yeah, no, I, it, it feels less strong. So I think it's it's reasonable to say, like, look, as a gay person, you want to be able to walk into a business and not fear that they're going to refuse to uh, sell things to you because of your sexual orientation. So they would say, like, expressing a view is different from just trying to live your life um, being the person who you are that is, like, attracted to people of the same sex so that those two aren't really comparable. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you there. I mean, I started playing with the see if it's, you know, hypocrisy on the left, and I don't think as, you know, I don't think as much. Yeah, well, not in this specific case. <laughs> no, you yeah, have to look that far. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in this case, of course. Um, so, and, you know, and, and anyway, so this this case is funny because you have all these people losing money, and, uh, and uh, it's kind of funny seeing them squirm a little, isn't it? Right, right. So, 
Um, I think I brought up to you uh, yesterday or the day before a case that I think is like maybe a little more difficult. Um, and there's a risk that what I read about this like has some inaccuracies in it. So just take it with a grain of salt. But the the story goes that uh, the NRA, the National Rifle Association, is near insolvency because uh, the state of New York has made it very unattractive for banks and insurers to do business with business with them. And like if like the NRA does, you have employees, you organize events, um, and so on. You have a TV channel. Uh, you need to carry insurance. You need a bank account to put your money in. You need a checking account to pay people, right? Um, and that the state of New York has really leaned on these institutions and said, like, look, we don't think you should be doing business with these people. And if that's true, I mean, you could see that as, uh, you know, private corporations deciding who they're going to do business with or not. But I do feel like when the government uses that as a tool to essentially put out of businesses groups that they disagree with, that starts to become a different thing for me, right? So they're not technically preventing them from expressing their views by threatening them with like prison or something like that. But they are making it impossible, if this is actually true, um, for them to express their views in a, in a way that seems like an abuse of government power. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. And, you know, of course, I mean, I don't think anyone should be surprised. I, I'm, I'm no fan of the NRA or guns. And so for me personally, I don't mind the outcome, but I agree with you 100 percent that the principle is, is, is wrong. And it, it, I think it could lead to... Um, all kinds of bad outcomes in the future when some government deems, uh, you know, has a value that I don't share or I think is, you know, even morally wrong. Um, and they then decide to impose their will on uh, on, on, on other you know, organizations. Um, so I think that, yeah, I think it's, it's a bad idea. And, and I'm certainly I hope that's somehow going to be challenged. Right on. Okay, so um, what uh, what have we got on the docket? We're going to do the election, but we're going to do some more fun stuff first. Yeah, huh? it was some fun stuff. Oh, actually, you know, it, 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 it occurred to me, Yoel, that uh, I believe this is going to air right in the new year, I believe. Maybe even, like, uh, shortly after New Year. So, Happy New Year, everybody. Um, I hope you uh, had a pleasant uh, New Year's Eve. Um, I'm the, I can tell you right now that I didn't go out. <laughs> I'm not going to go out. Fuck New Year's Eve. I'm not a big fan of New Year's Eve. Um, did I tell you about my, my two, my two factor theory of personality? No, go on. So you're either a, uh, you know, you, there, there are two kinds of people in the world. I guess it's a one factor. <laughs> two kinds of people. You're either a New Year's Eve person or you're a Halloween person. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And, you know, fuck New Year's Eve. I think New Year's Eve is like every, literally your, your aunt and uncle are going out. Your grandparents are going out. It's like totally, you know, fabricated fun and just like, like you can't get a table. Everything's overpriced. It's, I, I can't stand it. I, I knew you would get to the price eventually. <laughs> Hey man, you know it's it's a consideration. It's also crowded. It's just not fun, right? Um, right. And Halloween, I find just you know, uh, if you go out for Halloween as an adult, it's all kinds of creative, you know, people out there doing all kinds of crazy, naughty things. Um, so yeah, I uh, I'm a Halloween person. I'm on your team, man. All right, excellent. I knew we had something in common. Um, so, anyways, happy New Year. But you know, maybe uh, to, before we get you know too deep into politics, um, we thought we'd do something fun. So. Uh, it was a, it's a few months ago now that I saw, I think it was HBO, HBO's Twitter account had a little thing, you know, like, hey, tell us who your favorite character is, HBO character is. Um, and I thought it could be fun for us to um, nominate, or, you know, nominate, just to name uh, three characters that we really like uh, on HBO, no limits other than just an HBO show. I suppose it could be an HBO miniseries, um, something that's on HBO. Um, and uh, maybe we can just take turns, like one at a time. 
That sounds great. You go first. I go first. All right. You go first. Uh, I doubt we're going to have uh, uh, an overlap. Um, so, because I, I picked, you know, my first one is from Game of Thrones. And I know, you, I don't think you picked anyone from Game of Thrones. Zero I, Game of Thrones for me. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I have to. I must pick someone from Game of Thrones because uh, I think it's fair to say Game of Thrones is my favorite show ever of all time. It just like ticks all the boxes for me. I just love it. I also love the books. Um so, and to pick my favorite character is kind of hard because there's so many good characters in that show. And by the way, if you haven't, uh, if you haven't seen the show, uh, you, there could be some spoilers here. So you might want to fast forward or, uh, you know, watch the entire series and then come back to the show. Yeah, yeah that, th that seems right. Yeah, that seems doable. Um, okay, so I'm going to nominate. I mean, I, I, just, I struggled and this is not, I mean, it's kind of an obvious one, but I picked uh, Cersei Lannister. Um, Cersei. And, yeah, Cersei Lannister wow. is one as, as uh, one of my favorites. Um, and I, you know, I, I, the reason I she's one of my favorites is because she is she is so despicable. She's so evil, but she's not completely irredeemable. So she is more complex. There are other characters on the show, like uh, the Bastard of Bolton or even Joffrey Lannister, who are, I think, more one-dimensionally bad. There's nothing really redeeming about them. Um, and I think there is something redeeming about her. So first of all, let's you know get out of the way. She is evil. I mean, she is really evil. She is um, an adulteress. Uh, she, uh, not just an adulteress, had an incestuous relationship with her brother and had three children from her brother. Um, she is, uh, this is a funny one. Uh, she's an ableist. <laughs> so she's wicked. She's wickedly evil and terrible to her, to her brother, a Tyrion Lannister, who's a dwarf, and she makes fun of him for being a dwarf all the time. Um, she is cruel to you know, right down to the you know, deep inside of her. She's cruel. She's also a murderer. She, uh, she essentially is, you know, killed Ned Stark. It wasn't her hands, but she was instrumental in killing Ned Stark. Uh, she, Again, it wasn't her hands, but she killed her husband. Um, you could argue, I don't even think you can argue, it's clear. She killed the entire house Tyrell, okay, in this in this incredible scene in, in uh, the second to last uh, season. Um, other than uh, the Queen of Thorns, uh, uh, Oleana Tyrell. Um, but she, but she is fucking smart, man. She is really smart. She's conniving, and just when you think like she's out, like okay, that's it. You know, this is, we're, we're gonna she's gonna die soon or something. Uh, it you know it doesn't happen. She she somehow outsmarts her enemies. Um, so she is cunning. She's smart. And the other thing, and this is actually what you could say is 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 a, a redeeming quality. It's also a weakness of hers. She loves her children. Um, so she she really loves her children, and and I think there are moments of weakness for her, uh, uh, where she you know in terms of her diabolical plan, she uh, she was to some extent foiled to some extent by her love the love of her children. So, uh, anyways, a really interesting character, someone you love to hate, uh, but also I think uh, interesting. Uh, says something about you that you would pick the villain though. <laughs> yeah, well, truly, who I love is Ned Stark, but. He was only in one, you know, he's only in one season and he's also so unidimensionally good. Uh, it's hard to kind of put him there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get that. Yeah. I get that. Um, so continuing with the uh, um, people who are morally ambiguous theme, uh, my first pick is Al Swearingen from Deadwood. Did you you watch the show? Oh, I yeah. watched I watched it all. Yeah. yeah. So he's the brothel owner. He's uh incredibly foul-mouthed. He's played by Ian McShane, who's also an amazing actor. Um, and he's, you know, he's a 
bad guy. I mean, he's like a criminal, but he has also got a soft spot. Like you see his humanity at some parts. Like sometimes you're like, yeah, this guy really is trying to do the right thing. Um, he cares about his employees, you know, so it's definitely not like all, all bad or all good. It's an interesting mix. Um, and also he just swears like crazy. Oh my God. Swears nonstop. Actually, I love that show because, um, it was practically Shakespearean in the way they would speak to each other. And I had to, I mean, this just speaks to my, my lack of intelligence, but I, I I would have to, like, you know, after the show, go to, like, a plot breakdown to make sure, like, I understood all the plot points because I sometimes I didn't fully understand what they were saying or what they were communicating. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a show you can watch more than once. So I actually read, I'm not sure if this is true, but I read that originally they were going to have him do like period swears because the swears are anachronistic, right? He says like motherfucker and stuff, right? Stuff that they didn't actually say in the 1800s. But that when they wrote him that dialogue, the like period swears that he sounded like Yosemite Sam. So they were like, no, nah, this isn't going to work. You know, we got to we gotta update the uh, profanity. Tarnations! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Oh, that's a great one. That's a, that's a good one because I think that, I wish that show lasted longer. I really like that show. Yeah. That was, it, it was gone uh, too soon, but they are making a movie, uh, I hear. So we will get to see Elsewhere Engine again. Oh, lovely. I, 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 yeah, I really like that show. Um, okay. So uh, I'm next. I'm kind of, I think I picked all obvious ones. Um, so uh, my second one, uh, I guess also kind of a villain, but maybe not really. Actually, no, no, not really. Uh, I'm going to say it's um, it's Omar Little from The Wire. Omar's on my list too. Oh God! Yeah. All right, <laughs> that's hilarious. Um, so okay, so I'll just I'll keep it short, and you can you can you can do uh, you can do follow up. Um, First of all, he's just a fucking badass gangster. You know, he wears his big long trench coat. He's got this like, is it a sawed-off shotgun? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, he is. I mean, he is a bad guy. He is a criminal, but he has moral principles and he only robs from drug dealers and from way worse bad guys than him. Um, he doesn't swear. Uh, and he's like, you know, there, he's, there's a, there's a certainly a, 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 a strong, um, you know, string of, of decency in him. He, he's, he's a good guy, but uh, he's also, he also is a murderer. So uh, yeah. Yeah. So everything that you said, and then also I just think it's really cool that he's unapologetically gay. He's like, whatever, man. If you don't like that I have sex with men, I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, right. And that's, you know, I, I think uh, an interesting ju- juxtaposition, for, you know, in terms of character. Um, so, yeah, I, I, yeah, he he was great. I mean, that maybe, yeah, I guess the fact that we both picked him. Uh, yeah, tells you something. Yeah. And we had to pick some, you know, we had to pick someone in The Wire, um, which is also a fabulous show. Absolutely. Okay. So my last one, I feel, is super obvious, but I couldn't not pick Tony Soprano. Um and again, um, you know, I think it's such an interesting question. How much is he a villain? Uh, he does some horrible stuff. On the other hand, he genuinely loves his family. And I come down more on the villain side with him. And I think it's interesting. Like what I take from that show is you can be a sociopath and you can still love specific people. Right. Like that doesn't that doesn't excuse you. Um, and it's just all the evil shit that he does, like throughout those seven seasons. Like there's no way I think in the end to see him as anything but evil, even though he is very good to his um, to his kids, certainly. And, and even to his wife. I mean, he cheats on her a lot, but um, I think he does love her and want the best for her in his own in his own way, but it doesn't save him. 
Yeah. I I have a, a, a guilty uh, admission. Yeah. I have not seen The Sopranos. You've never seen The no, Sopranos? No, I've seen a few episodes. I think I've maybe seen maybe one entire season. But, you know, I have HBO. I, I could I could easily watch. And, and occasionally, I'm like, oh, yeah, let's start watching it again. Um, but I, I don't know. I haven't done it. And I feel I've, I, I have really missed out. You have HBO and you have a sabbatical coming up. Yes, I suppose uh, that would be a good use of, uh, of my sabbatical. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so I guess uh, it's my final one. Um, this one, I think you'll probably laugh. Uh, I picked uh, Samantha Jones from Sex in the City. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, <laughs> Which one is she? Is she like the super horny one? Or? Yeah, she's the okay. super horny one. She's a bit older than the other characters. I think maybe in the show she's like mid-40s and the other characters are like, I guess, maybe early 30s or late 20s. Um, and, uh, I love Sex in the City. I mean, not the movies, the movies suck. Um, but I really enjoyed the show. I, I have a distinct memory of, uh, you know, binge watching it one summer. Um, and it just kind of reminds me, so I, you know, I lived in New York for three years and, uh, and I lived there in that period during, you know, during the show, the, uh, late nineties, early two thousands. Um, so I have a, st- a soft spot for the show, but I just like her character because she is like, she's flipping the stereotype, uh, uh, men and women on, on its head. Um, you know, so she's super horny. She's, uh, anti, you know, she's not into monogamy. She's not into relationships. She just wants casual sex. Um, she's just plain spoken, uh, doesn't give a shit. Uh, and yeah, she's, you know, a feisty character. Um, uh, so yeah, playing a little bit with, you know, the, the, the stereotypes about, uh, of men and women and just, just funny, I think. Um, and also n- another interesting, um, uh, little tidbit about, so the actress who plays, uh, Samantha Jones is, uh, named Kim, uh, Cottrell and she, who's Canadian and, uh, she apparently dated or went on a date with Trudeau Sr., what? Yeah, she went on a date with Pierre Trudeau, uh, who was then the prime minister, but not uh, not married. Um, and uh, yeah, and she is. Tw- she was twenty four years old at the time, and he. I'm not sure how old he was, but much much older, possibly uh, late fifties, maybe early sixties. I don't know exactly his exact age at that time. Um, but you would think it's all Trudeau's, you know, scuzzy, you know, you know, guy. No, she asked him on the date. She like, she just, you know, she was going, she, she asked him on a date. Uh, they were going to the Genies, which is the Canadian version of, um, of the, oh my God, I don't even know what the Canadian version of, I think it's the, of the, of the Oscars. Um, and, uh, she asked him on a date and they, and then, you know, they went together to, uh, to the award show, um, which I think is, I just think it's hilarious. Okay. That is a cool anecdote. And we're back. Uh, this is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we are both on Twitter. Uh, the uh, podcast account is at Four Beers Pod. Uh, so you can DM us. You can at mention us. Uh, we check that pretty frequently. If you're more of an email person, you can reach us at fourbeerspod at gmail.com. That will forward to both of us. And our website, as always, is fourbeers.fireside.fm. And there you can find our uh, back catalog as well. And you can listen to the episodes there, or you can download them into the podcast player. 
of your choice. So, all right, so let's get to our uh, to, to the main event. Uh, so what are we doing here? That's right. So we're going to talk politics. Um, and this uh, this is specifically coming from a book that I read recently um, because I had been hearing good things about it and the book did not disappoint. So this book is called Identity Crisis. It's about the 2016 U.S. presidential election. It's by three political scientists, uh, John Sides, uh, Michael Tesler, and Lynn Vavrick. Um, it is, so these are, these are academics, um, but they are quite good writers, so it is very readable. Uh, so this book deals with uh, the 2016 presidential election, both uh, the primaries on the Democratic and the Republican sides and uh, then the general, and tries to answer the question, um, well, why did Trump win? And what changed in the electorate um, to to enable him to win? Um, so that's kind of the broad question that the book is, is trying to tackle. Um, and the, I guess, primary thesis, uh, I would say, is that this election broke down more than previous elections along lines of um, racial uh, identity, and particularly for a certain subgroup of white people, um, whites without a college degree. Uh, so that those were kind of the crucial demographic that shifted in 2016 compared to the previous few elections. Uh, so I think uh, a good way to do this is um, to look at some theories of why Trump won, of which there are many. And I understand, Mickey, you've been doing um, a lot of research trying to dig up some of these theories, eh? A lot of research. Yes, I, I thought about this for uh, for an hour before I got here. Um, uh, but no, so I mean, you know, I think since 2016, everyone is, you know, uh, you know, it seems like there's so many theories out there floating around out there. Um, so I just kind of tried to remember some that I could recall um, and list them. And, and to be frank, I, you know, I, I, you know, I've got four, possibly five, but I don't think they're independent necessarily. Um, so I think they're related, but anyways, I'll, I'll kind of go through them and you tell me why they're, why they're wrong. Um, so the first one, and, and, and the way you just pitched that book or way the, the way you summarized that book, it seemed like the first one might not be completely off base. And that's the, I would say facile, um, kind of theory that Trump won because he appealed to racists. So the notion being that, um, he appealed to racists by not distancing himself from white nationalists like David Duke, for example, um, using dog whistles. Um, and because, again, this is the, the according to the theory, um, America is, still has a major race problem, and there's you know there's, there is you know lots of racism. Um, he was appealing to a segment of the population that the Democrats, of course, would not be speaking to. Um, so simply, this is the deplorables theory. So his you know his um, the people who voted for Trump are deplorable. They're bad people. They're racist. Trump is racist, and there were enough of them to swing the election. Right. So, uh, as you said, facile, um, but not entirely false. So they're careful in this book to distinguish between people who have overtly hostile attitudes uh, towards minorities, let's say black people, um, and people, uh, white people, who have kind of racially coded economic resentments. Um, and it's uh, the, the former group is is not large, right? So the people who are like really explicit racists. Um, the, the latter group is is bigger and was big enough, uh, they say, to, to swing this election. So if you look at um, agreement with statements like discrimination against white people is just as much a problem these days as discrimination against black people or um, 
you know, the situation that black people in America are in today is due more to their own uh, lack of effort than uh, to discrimination. So stuff along those lines. So, we're, so it's not like, you know, uh, explicitly like black people are terrible, but it's this feeling of like, this is a group that we're in competition with um, as white people that is getting advantages that we don't get, that's being treated better in a way that we're not. Um, and we don't like that, right? So it's a seeing the kind of white identity group as in conflict with other groups um, and seeing your group, if you're a white person, is falling behind those other groups and as being kind of um, overlooked um, by by people in government um, and uh, disrespected, I guess you'd say. So this I, this ties in a lot with a, a book by by Arlie uh, Hochschild, um, "Strangers in Their Own Land," which gets at this idea as well of like these are people who really they don't you know they're they're not going around spewing racial hatred. But there has been, since Obama was elected in 2008, this gradual coherence of a feeling of like, we're a group that's under threat and we need to protect our identity against these threatening outgroups, which could be African-Americans, uh, it could be immigrants. Um, so the extent to which people hold those views um, definitely predicts their, their support of Trump. Now, um, one thing that's really nice about this book methodologically um, is, you know, you have a problem of Trump was already obviously like... Like promoting these views, right? So you might be like, well, I like Trump for other reasons, and I come to agree with him about the racial stuff. And it turns out they have data um, from a representative survey in 2011, so well before Trump was on the scene, and they have those attitudes from that survey from the 2011 time point. And then they could go back uh, to those people in 2016 and look at who do they support, right? So that really rules out this like reverse causality thing. And indeed, the people who have these more kind of uh, racially resentful, racially conservative attitudes in 2011 are the people who are disproportionately likely to support Trump, even in the primary, right? Where you have your choice of a number of different Republicans, right? So it's not just partisanship. It's that they seem to be attracted to his views in particular. Okay. So I want to push back a little bit. You, you, you said there were two camps here. So there were the overt racists and then these people who have what you called racial resentment. Um, and, and, and the example items you used, they don't sound to me unrelated to what we would call in, in, in social, social psychology, modern racism or symbolic racism, right? So people who aren't explicitly saying, I hate black people, because there are very few people who actually say, say that, although I think there are more than, more than we'd like. Um, but there are enough people who, you know, symbolically oppose things that will lead to the advancement uh, of black people or even, you know, I don't want to use the word reparations, but um, will correct the wrong that was, you know, committed uh, against black people. Um, and, you know, in psychology, we call that a modern racist. That eventually transformed into something else entirely, implicit prejudice or implicit racism, which, which I do think is distinct. I, I do think it, it, these are different constructs. Um, but, it, but I mean, from that lens, both those groups are racist, No. Um, I mean, now we're getting into a semantic argument, I suppose. Uh, you know, the modern racism scale has been criticized for exactly that reason, that it labels things as racism that should not be labeled racism, right? And the thing about racism is there's not like kind of, as far as I know, um, there's not like a 
technical definition of like what's a racist, right? It's a lay term that can mean what you want it to. So some people use it to mean I'm out burning crosses. Other people use it to mean I feel like black people get too much support from the government and, you know, they're on welfare too much or whatever. Um, and there's kind of this like spectrum of beliefs. And on one end, there's, you know, the KKK member. And on the other end, there's that, you know, there's these sort of like um, economic concerns that have a like a strong racial component to them of, you know, the government spending all of this money on uh, social aid to people who are undeserving, um, which is something that we should get into about these Trump voters is that they're not necessarily economically conservative. They just don't want the government helping people that they think are undeserving. Right. And it, it, in effect, that means minorities, really. So okay, let me let me list uh, my other uh, my other ones, or at least, and then let's kind of dig deeper. I think into in, into uh, this analysis. Um, so I think uh, these are all related. Um, but uh, theory number two is there is a large part of America uh, that has been ignored by the Democrats. Uh, these are white, often rural, uh, often poor um, white people. Who, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, again, the theory goes they're ignored by the Democrats, especially in the last election, where it just seemed really about, um, really about, uh, you know, at least Hillary's ca uh, campaign seemed to be a lot about, uh, you know, reaching out to, to minorities, you know, uh, not to, you know, low SES whites. And I think, you know, some of these low SES whites felt abandoned by the Democratic Party. Um, so, you know, some of the people you might think of, so I read a, a, a few years ago now, uh, J.D. Vance, I, I, I thought it was a really interesting book called The Hillbilly Elegy, which described his own life, his own, it's a memoir of his life growing up um, in Appalachia or having spending a lot of time there at least, um, and having a fucked up life, you know, and, and, and having, you know, lots of people, you know, die and um, end up in prison, uh, being addicted to drugs. Um, and it's these people who seem to be ignored by... Um, by the Democrats and maybe someone like Donald Trump, if not the Republican Party specifically, but Donald Trump, he at least talked the talk uh, that he and he he might appeal to them. Um, uh, the more I the more I talk about it, the more I think it's a kind of a silly theory. Because why would fucking Donald Trump you know talk to those people? You know, guy who was born rich and was always rich and uh, anyhow, but he somehow conned people to think that he would care for them. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. There's there's a lot going on in there. Um, I think it's fascinating that you know when Hillary ran against Obama in 2008, she positioned herself as the champion of working class white people, right? So she talked about like hardworking Americans, white Americans, and in fact, um, they have some data in this book that shows like that in that election, her supporters were the ones who were. Uh, who scored higher on this racial resentment stuff, right? So she did, in fact, uh, succeed in attracting that um, portion of the Democratic uh, electorate, primary electorate. Now, um, I think where there is some amount of truth to this is that uh, they make a really convincing argument that from both Trump and from Clinton, um, voters got signals that led them to align partisan politics with racial identity. So Hillary in, in um, 
2016 sent strong signals that she was the candidate that would speak for racial minorities, and Trump sent signals that said, I'm going to stick up for white people, right? So one thing that we forget as people who are super obsessed with politics is that most like ordinary American voters know extremely little about politics. So previous to the Obama years, like a surprising number of voters weren't able to correctly match Democrats with um more help for minorities and Republicans with less, right? So even that kind of like what seems like a very basic feature of like American politics since the 60s, like many American voters were getting wrong. Um, and what they argue in this book is that voters received over the last, I guess it would be like eight to 10 years now, these signals that allowed them to um, sort those parties, the Democrats and the Republicans on that attribute, right? So more people um, now no, you know, well, the Democrats are the party for minorities, the Republicans are the party for white people. Um, and that seemed to apply particularly um, to less educated white people, so non-college whites who really um, swung dramatically towards uh, the Republican Party and vice versa for college-educated whites who historically were like uh, the Republican base who are now um, in, in the 2016 election and then even more so in the midterms moving towards the Democrats. Um, so I, I don't think it's entirely wrong to say there's... Um, there's some element of Trump's support that has to do with voters looking to him to be like, I'm the person who's going to, he's the person who's going to like advocate for my interests. One super interesting thing from the book was that it doesn't seem to come so much from your personal economic circumstances. So if you look at how are people doing personally, uh, like in the 2011 voter survey, for example, um, that doesn't really predict whether you're more likely to support Trump or somebody else. But your perceptions of how your group is doing, especially vis-a-vis -vis other racial groups in American society, that is actually quite predictive, right? So it's not really that people are acting out of a motivation to protect themselves, but more out of a motivation to protect people like them. So on the basis of a group identity. That's really interesting. So, you know, the the, the little that I know about the book uh, comes from my, you, you you had me listen, or you, you recommended that I listen to the Ezra Klein podcast. I forced you to listen to that <laughs> you podcast. Did. You held my head and you're like, you better put these headphones in your ear, goddammit. Listen to his annoying nasal voice. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> anyway, so I listened uh, willingly. Um, and the one thing that struck me as just, I don't know, deeply, I just reacted negatively to it. I, I just felt it was wrong. Um, uh, to, the, the notion that it was the, the election of Obama that kind of awakened this, this kind of um, racial resentment, that it awakened that maybe this kind of alignment of the Democrats are for the minorities and the Republicans are for, for whites. Um, and I mean, I get it. It's, it it kind of, it makes sense, but... I guess I, I guess I was more optimistic. I guess I was more hopeful, and it seemed, yeah, um, for me at least, the, the most depressing part of this is how much people were negatively impacted by the election of Obama. They they saw it as some grave ill, and as far as I could tell, again, he, he was he's on my side, so I agree with his politics, but he's a, a Democrat. And you know, de Democrat things, but because he's black, all of a sudden it's it, it, it's something different, wholly different. And the way he was criticized was much more severe, um, and unfair, I think. Anyways, but I, you know, I, I know I'm speaking, uh, you know, as a partisan here, uh, but yeah, it was I, I found that disturbing. But 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 correct me if I'm wrong. They made it, their argument is that that election kind of stirred something in the American populace. 
Yeah. I mean, the way that I read them is so Obama was very like carefully post-racial, right? But along with Obama's election, there was kind of an explicit turn of the Democratic Party towards being like the party of minorities, right? The Obama coalition was young people plus racial minorities. Um, and that uh, a lot of Obama voters, um, so people who voted Democrat were what they call in the book cross-pressured. Um, so actually, there's quite a substantial minority of Obama voters who actually had more racially conservative attitudes. Um, so that they weren't racist in the sense of like, oh, I'll never vote for a black person. But when they sensed sort of an alignment of the parties around these racial identity lines, um, they were attracted towards the Republicans more, who who they saw as you know sticking up for their group essentially. Yeah, yeah, that's that that's interesting. Um, and actually, I think that actually relates to uh, my theory four. I'll skip I'll skip theory theory three for now. Get back to it. Um. And and this is I think this is I think directly related to what we just said. Um, and that so this is you know the idea that Trump was elected as a response to progressive overreach. So you know some of the stuff we can we complain about, or at least I complain about about the left, right? Um, about uh, you know go listen to our when the left goes too far if you want to hear what we're talking about. Um, but uh, you know where the you know identity politics is, is you know is, is paramount um, wokeness um, and it seems like there was a, a re reaction to that. So in other words, um, it's the left going even further left that then led to you know, more centri central kind of centrist folks being, no, that I, I'm, I'm allergic to this. This is not me at all. And maybe formerly I would have been, uh, uh, you know, more aligned with the Democratic Party, but now they're doing this stuff that's just way, way too far and I can't abide by it anymore. Um, and, 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 and they just, you know, went to Trump. Yeah. I, I mean, I wouldn't describe the people who, um, won the election for Trump. So the, these were, you know, white people, less educated whites um, in the upper Midwest. Like that is what enabled him to flip the states that Democrats needed to hold uh, in order to win a presidential election. Like, centrist seems kind of wrong. I mean, they're often like kind of disengaged in politics. Um, they maybe don't vote all the time. They maybe don't have a great kind of understanding of like what the parties actually stand for. So the idea that they're like carefully following the excesses of like, you know, the identity politics left or whatever doesn't really hold up for me. Um, I think, you know, the truth there is in that those that stuff coming from the left reflects kind of a broader alignment of the parties along kind of like racial identity and secondarily class lines. Um, and I think people did pick up on that in some way. Um, I don't think that they knew about the, the details or anything like that. So I, I mean, I think it's ridiculous to say like, oh, what these campus activists did handed Trump the election. I think they're a symptom of the same thing that, that allowed Trump to win. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I never bought that theory for that. Again, that, 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 that did seem too simple, but there was something there, right? I mean, again, there was the response to, to, to Obama, and I, mean, I wouldn't mind, you know, digging deeper a, a little bit in that. But let me just name my last one that I, that I could think of, um, and then we'll maybe uh, take a deep dive into the book. Um, so this is actually one. Uh, again, it's not; they're all related. 
uh, and this maybe relates to my the comment I made about uh, Trump appealing to kind of the the the, the uh, poor rural whites. Um, but uh, just like you know, very variant to that. So this idea here is that there is a class of people in the U.S. not necessarily defined by race, though, um, who are been left behind, um, who uh, can't you know, make a decent living uh, in a 21st century economy, um, are not highly educated, and their lives don't have meaning. Their lives are empty. Um, they're likely to be depressed or, you know, uh, susceptible to depression. They're susceptible to, uh, to, to drug use, especially opioids. Um, they're... Why that? Why their lives have have no meaning? I mean, I think that's complicated. I think you know the the, the economy has changed. You certainly need higher education. Um, you, uh, you know, industries have left the U.S. They left a lot of uh, you know uh, Western. So these kind of like uh, uh, jobs that don't require an education are are not really around anymore. But anyways, there's a whole class of people who are underemployed, who are barely working. Um, and, and 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 then you couple that with the law, you know the the, the, the you know sharp decline in religion. Um, they these are these are folks who don't have meaning in their life. Um, they don't have much. They're susceptible to depression again. Um, and uh, they're they might be attracted to someone like Trump because they want a system disruptor. They want someone who's going to smash the system. Um, and who gives a shit about, you know, ab about the consequences? Because whatever it is now, whatever the status quo is, it's not working for me. It's like deeply not working for me. Um, and like, let's go for someone who's going to break it. And maybe, maybe that'll be better. Yeah. So uh, there's not good evidence that people's personal economic circumstances led them to vote for Trump. So if you look at the uh, income uh, of the average Trump voter, it's right around the median income of the Republican primary electorate. I think it's $1,000 family income. So it's, you know, these aren't folks who are dirt poor. Um, but uh, I, I do think that there's something to the idea of these are people who are looking around at their communities and seeing something going really wrong. Uh, so if you look at uh, the life expectancy among uh, whites without a college degree in the U.S. that is actually declining, which is unheard of in a, you know a advanced democracy. Um, if you look at the causes of those deaths, um, it's uh, opiate addic addiction, uh, <laughs> drinking yourself to death, uh, and uh, suicide. Uh, so there's, these are things that, to me, say these are people who are experiencing psychological distress and who are. Uh, coping with that in ways that that are very bad for them. Um, any uh, any cannabis deaths there? Zero, zero, zero. zero. Yeah, no, people, that's... people. There's a solution. Just smoke weed. <laughs> <laughs> Your life may still suck, but <laughs> at least you won't die. <laughs> and music will sound better. <laughs> that's right. Um, so, uh, so I think it's it's plausible to say, like, you know, these are people who look around at their communities who really see things going wrong. There's actually some data looking at. Um, Trump's vote share uh, in the primaries, and that's actually predicted to some extent on a, a county level by uh, the mortality rate among middle-aged whites, right? So in those counties where middle dying at a higher rate, Trump gets more support, right? So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. This is, um, I can, I can post a link to that. Um, so 
I, I think this uh, this idea of like, w- w- well, now I'm willing to burn it all down. That's possibly plausible. It's also, you know, we know that uh, when people are under threat, they turn to group identity um, and they view outgroups more negatively, right? So this intergroup polarization along racial lines, um, this resentment of other racial groups may well be in part a product of that, of feeling that your own group is under threat. Well, so I want to ask you a question. So um, uh, in terms of the book, so I didn't read it, obviously, uh, but, you know, what did you find surprising, you know, in terms of their analysis? You know, again, I gave you kind of a lay, I don't, know, I don't think it's a lay analysis. There's a lot of people who are kind of putting these analyses forward. But I think what they did that's different than everything that I came up with um, was that hard data, you know, from Ezra Klein's podcast. Like I heard there was like pages and pages and pages of drafts, which for us, I think would be super fun, right? Um, but so anything surprising there? Anything that was like, oh, I hadn't thought of that? Yeah, so I was, I was actually taken aback by how many voters didn't know basic facts about the differences between the parties in terms of where they fell on racial politics. Um, and that is, I mean, that's that's just my bad of, um, you know, not stepping out of my own perspective as somebody who follows politics obsessively. Like, it turns out that a lot of voters just know very little. Um, and that, like, actually forms, like, a real, it's not just like, haha, these people are dumb. That's an important part of their analysis of, like, this is something that, like, even if, like, let's say, as a voter who doesn't know a ton about politics, I'm like, yeah, sort of resentful towards these other racial groups or towards immigrants, I don't really have a good place to go with that, like in terms of guiding my preferences until I get these signals from both Democrats and Republicans that, oh, so if you have these concerns, here's how you should be voting, right? So that that kind of like that match between, you know, the policies that the elites are advocating and the stuff that was already out there in the population, but kind of like free floating, um, wasn't given an outlet. All of a sudden you get this click and you, now you have this shift, this uh this realignment that had these dramatic consequences. Like, I thought that was very cool. Yeah, that's a, that's, yeah that, that is a really interesting idea. So you feel aggrieved because your life sucks for all different kinds of reasons. Um, and you look for a scapegoat and then coalitional psychology plays, plays a part. Uh, and that's not Trump. That's just, unfortunately, human nature. Um, and, then, and then Trump, you know, explicitly and implicitly, you know, gives you enemies. Um, and then you you fall in line, and then and then of course is the, 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 that mapping, uh, which you were saying is um, I wasn't so clear before. That's right, and and that doesn't come only from Trump. That that comes from Clinton as well. So because Clinton was running on the strategy of reactivating the Obama coalition, uh, she had to talk very explicitly in terms of racial politics. Um, and she didn't have the benefit that Obama had of being a racial minority herself, right? So Obama could, in a way, afford not to talk explicitly about racial politics as much because he was Black, uh, whereas if she wants to appeal to that coalition, she needs to be much more explicit about her racial politics, which, you know, she took a kind of a dramatic turn towards uh, racial uh, egalitarianism, I guess, um, or like towards a more left position on racial politics. So certainly compared to like her positioning in 2008 and then previous to that, you know, in the Clinton administration where really, you know, Clinton ran as a a racial moderate really and um, kind of made a lot of like electoral hay of kind of decrying the excesses of, you know, the sister soldier moment or whatever, where, you know, he would talk about like, no, the stuff that these like rap musicians are saying is bad. Um, Her famous 
famous clip about the super predators. You know, all of this stuff came from this, I, I think, Clinton triangulation strategy, right? So that's just to say, like, there's also from the Democratic side been a shift in terms of like what their messaging emphasizes. And that's responsible as well, right? So it's not only Trump, it's that from both sides, voters are getting messages that say like, hey, here's where you should align yourself if you have these specific beliefs. That's really interesting. So so it begs the question about 2020. So, um, well, clearly Trump is going to, you know, keep on, you know, hammering the us versus them line and, and explicitly us versus them on racial lines. Um, what do the Democrats do? Do the Democrats, um, given the analysis you just discussed, do they underplay that? Do they try to confuse that? Given that they're going to be these aggrieved people who are most likely to be less educated whites, um, um, do you not stress the racial element of the coalition you're trying to build to attract them? Yeah. So I think that's going to be a really interesting question that I'm fascinated to see play out in the uh, Democratic primaries, which are like basically underway as of now, right? So do you go with like a Kamala Harris, which is like really doubling down? Um, or do you go with like Joe Biden equivalent, right? Like a uh, white guy, maybe from the Midwest. I mean, I know Biden's not actually from the Midwest, but it's the idea, right? Somebody who might like bring those uh, less educated white voters back into the fold. Um, it's a great question. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know. So the thing is like, man, if we talk about like electoral strategy, like Clinton did win the popular vote, right? Um, and, and she was handicapped in other ways as a candidate um, by her email scandal. So they actually in the book spend quite a while talking about that uh, by the Clinton Foundation, by kind of the baggage that she brought with her from the 90s. Um, so you could see a candidate who's like Clinton in every way, but doesn't have that baggage, uh, beating Trump easily, right? Um, it's a, he didn't have a, a large margin in those states that gave him the electoral college. You could flip those quite easily. So you might say, like, let's not overreact to one loss. Clinton had these unique weaknesses as a candidate that, like, let's say Kamala Harris wouldn't have, uh, that Elizabeth Warren might not have. Um, and uh, maybe the strategy is actually a good one, and she just executed it poorly. Uh, yeah, how do you win an election? I guess you know is the is the question, and I, I know we're kind of biased here. Somebody, I I I don't want Trump to win. I, I think I think he's bad for the U.S. world. So I would like whoever the Democrats put forward um, to win. Um, so you know, yeah. So what what advice uh, can one glean from the book? Again, if you're a, if you want uh, the Democrats to win, it it really seems to me like Trump was not expecting to win. Um, that he won, you know, because he got lucky um, and that he, uh, you know, has substantial liabilities as a candidate. Um, so he... What are you I, talking about? <laughs> right. So so they, they talk a bit about, you know, the media coverage and the role that played. And, and there was this kind of um, I guess you could say conventional wisdom that like no scandal sticks to him. And that's actually not true. Um, so when uh, the media intensively covered things that were negative for him, his um, approval ratings, his support declined. Um, it's just that a lot of media coverage wasn't particularly negative towards him. It was covering more of this horse race stuff of like, oh, he's doing really well, which signals to the electorate, hey, somebody you should maybe check out. Um, so I think that really what the Democrats need to do is run somebody who's halfway competent, who doesn't make a lot of unforced errors. And I think they could just win by default. I mean, I, I, I want to agree with you, but I feel like you are doing 
exactly what, I, you know, what you're underestimating Trump. You're like, oh, well, you know, he's like, he, yeah, he's, a, he's a really flawed candidate. And if there was a be better alternative, then he would have won. But he won also against the field of like some strong Republicans, right? I mean, it wasn't as if all his, his, his opponents were, you know, unknown Republicans. He, you know, so he beat them all. Yeah, he won, and they do spend some time talking about this, against a very fragmented field um, where the party establishment didn't settle on a consensus candidate really ever, which is kind of unusual. They had like Bush, they had Cruz, and they had Rubio, right? Those are the big ones. Maybe, mm -hmm. uh, who's the guy from? Oh, Kasich. Kasich, right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but Kasich was always a long shot. Okay. Yeah, so there were just uh, too many candidates in. Um, there wasn't kind of like one candidate that people coalesced around in terms of endorsements. Um, and then the other candidates in the primary um, really didn't attack Trump as uh, early and as sharply as they, in retrospect, should have done, right? So it was a little bit of a diffusion of responsibility of like, oh, well, I'll let somebody else take care of it, right? I don't want to be the person to pick to piss off his supporters. I'm going to let somebody else do it. And then once he inevitably flames out, I'm going to pick up his supporters, right? So I think that, uh, yeah, he, he beat a large field, but in some ways, the fact that the field was so large made it easier for him to beat them. Um... Okay, so you you don't you're not sure there is your answer to my question about how to beat Trump is just put a put a less flawed candidate up against him. Put up anybody who's not Hillary. Okay, um, I think that's a bit simple, but okay, let's let, let, let's stick with it. What does Trump need to do to win? Oh boy, um, well, uh, you know the continued strength of the economy will help him. Uh, conversely, if uh, you know the stock market's been shaky lately, if we... didn't, the, didn't the stock market drop a huge amount of points this week? Yeah, it's been all over the place, right? So, like, if you look at 2018 overall, uh, the the market is not up. Um, so we're basically flat from the beginning of 2018. It was definitely something that he boasted about when it was going well, and that now he doesn't have a lot to say about. In general, like the economy is doing well, though. Like, right? So, like, you can look at uh, the markets as sort of maybe a leading indicator. But so far, um, you know, hiring has been good. Unemployment is low. Right? That's cushioned him to some extent, although um, he, you know, his approval rating is low considering how well the economy is doing. So, like, as Trump. Um, you know, you want you want the economy to keep doing well. Um, you don't want more major scandals because those do hurt him. Um, basically, like almost the same advice as as I would give to the Democrats. It's like get out of the way, shut up, and let the fact that people are happy about how things are going economically work for you. Um, I don't think he's capable of doing that. Actually, that's just not in his nature. But Twitter would be good. So what I'm hearing is uh, incredibly high priors, confidence exuding from you that Trump is going to lose 2020. Oh man, I've learned never to make predictions about politics. We're gonna have a we're gonna have an episode in 2020. I'm gonna I, I'm, I'm I hope you are going to be right. Well, uh, if I'm wrong, I'm gonna want to do a lot of shots. So <laughs> we'll save the Jägermeister. At the very least, you'll be able to shake off your one beer in bar, Monica. That's right. That's right. These are desperate times. They call for desperate measures. <laughs> yeah. And am I am I correct that if you're a data nerd, like you, you're especially going to like the book? Oh, this thing is like full of charts. 
Yeah. yeah. It's awesome. I actually like, I have my copy um, right here and I folded back the pages that have something interesting. And it's like, you know, every 10th page or something where I'm like, oh, got to check this out. So it's really, it has a, just a ton of fascinating data in here. Um, and uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely, um, it, it was an unexpected pleasure in terms of like what it's actually like to read, given that it was written by academics. Yeah, right. Okay, do, let's see if this works. We'll, we'll flip through a page, pick one of your dog-eared graphs, and yeah, what it. what have we got? Yeah, yeah. Okay, pick one hold random. on, I'm gonna pull yeah. one up. Yeah. So, figure nine point one in pay on page two hundred seven shows uh, the extent to which presidential approval has become uncoupled from uh, consumer sentiment. So basically, how how do people feel about the economy under uh, first Obama and then Trump? So basically, uh, JFK to GW Bush, there's a pretty robust correlation between how do you feel about the economy and how much do you approve of uh, the job the president is doing? And then under Obama and Trump, basically zero correlation. Um, so that's a kind of a crazy thing. Yeah, that's fascinating. Right? Right. I mean, oh, that's fucking depressing, actually. Yeah. I mean, you would think that would be a major correlate, I would say, predictor uh, of how happy you are with your president, but it's that's tribalism, right? I mean... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, there's another uh, amazing graph, I don't know what page it's on, where it shows uh, consumer sentiment among separately among Republicans and Democrats. And basically, it's like... Uh, Democrats are very happy with how the economy is going right up until when Trump is inaugurated and then it like falls off a cliff and they're like, economy is terrible and vice versa for Republicans, right? So it's really that it's driven more by partisanship. Wow, that's, 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 a, that, that's that worked out well, that little experiment. Yeah. I think that's actually a, a pretty good plug for the book. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, uh, if you can't tell, 100% endorse this book, uh, Identity Crisis by Sides, Tesler. And Vavrek. Is it safe to say you would not wipe your ass with the pages of that book? Mm -hmm.